1 Corinthians 13. We continue looking at the nature of love this morning, looking through the issues of pride that the Corinthian church was dealing with. As we look to the reading of God's word, though, if you would please join me in prayer. Our Father, majesty and bounded, worthy of all worship, you, Christ, are the King of glory, the eternal Son of the Father, and you, Holy Spirit, are advocate and our guide. We praise you and declare your great worth, O triune God. And from your word today, we ask that you would reveal to us your truth, that your truth would conquer our anxious hearts, that it would put to death the pride of our hearts. And we pray and ask this all in your mighty name. Amen. We'll be starting in verse 1, but we'll be just looking at part of verse 4. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. An appropriate Aesop's fable, the frog and the ox. Now, there are a couple of versions of this, but the basic story goes something like this. Some young frogs are trying to tell an older frog of this enormous animal that they had just seen, which was an ox. And the older frog wanted to show them that he could be that big as well. So he kept puffing himself up like frogs can do. And then he would say something like, was he this big? And all the little frogs would chime in together and say, no, he was much bigger. So the older frog took a a deep breath. He blew and he blew and he blew and he swelled and he swelled and he swelled. And finally he said, I'm sure the ox is not as big as this. And then he blew up. So there are no doubt many lessons that we can draw from this. Avoid exploding frogs to what most of us in English know as don't get too big for your britches. Same idea. Don't get too big for your britches. And just like the Greeks, we have this expression of someone being proud as being inflated, puffed up. Even that act of sucking in air and sticking out your chest, that's a real thing. We've seen people do that. I know in high school it seemed like those who were wrestlers as a prerequisite for walking down the hall. This is just what it looked like. We know people like that. We see it. Both in our speech and in how we act, pride is a death to our soul. And for every effort to get bigger than everyone else, what ends up happening is we have a very small heart. At its core, pride It's a lie. It's a falsehood where we esteem ourselves higher than we should. And since you and I have been lifted up by the grace of God, 
we can now walk that low path of humility. And this low path was one that the Corinthians were not wanting to travel at all. Enormous spiritual gifts, big personalities were feeding their very proud hearts. And Paul, as an expert physician of the soul, has come to deflate them before they blow up. Not only is their arrogance a grave danger to themselves, but it also prevents them from being a fountain of life to others. We see this in what's sometimes referred to as vainglory. It's a little bit of an older expression, but it, it describes this aspect of pride. It's seeking after glory for yourself that you do not deserve. An undue concern with an outward showing of your own excellence. What other people see in you because of how good you think you are. And that was the Corinthians. And to this, Paul puts it quite simply. Love does not boast. It is not arrogant. It's puffed up. In this very short section on love, Paul has either invented a couple words or at least found some that are not very common. It's easy enough to understand what they mean by the context, but it's a very curious thing. Like, why, why did he do this? One commentator, he notes, he says, on closer examination, it seems that almost every word in this chapter has been chosen with the particular situation at Corinth in mind. Paul is using some very specialized words because of their specialized behavior. And they would make the connection easy enough. And the word translated here is boast. It's used only here in the New Testament. And they've only found it in one other writing in all the the Greek uh, writings that we know of about 100 years before Paul. Its meaning is that of arrogant speech. Someone who's bragging about their accomplishments, exaggerating, baseless chatter. Uh, Someone who's trying to heap praise upon themselves. That's the word boast there. Uh, The other word, arrogant, it's only used seven times in the whole New Testament, all of them by Paul, six of them in this letter to the Corinthians. Translations that use puffed up capture it better because the noun form is a, a bellows, you know, something that blows air. And Paul has warned them several times in this letter about not being puffed up. Chapter 8, he specifically said that knowledge puffs up but love builds up, making that distinction. And the two words, of course, are are similar in meanings of pride. So the combination of the two of them together point first as a pride which is shown in words or speech, and the other as a haughtiness or a pride in bearing, how you carry yourself. It's a pride that has seeped from the inside now to the outer demeanor. Some of you who may remember when uh, Terrell Owens, who was a famed NFL wide receiver at the time he was playing for the 49ers, he caught a, touch, uh, a touchdown and immediately he pulled out of his sock a Sharpie and he autographed right there in the end zone, he autographed the ball and he had it sent to his financial advisor. And of course, everyone was like, oh my goodness, how over the top is that? That's a special level of hubris. But sadly, in the sports and entertainment world, it's super common now. People do that kind of stuff all the time. We almost expect them to behave like that. Some celebrities or wannabes will hire a posse around them. 
all these people to make them seem more important. And some will also hire a whole platoon of bodyguards for the same purpose. They can show the world how famous they are and how much they need to be protected. Far worse is when this happens in the church. There are pastors who have done such a thing. And it just screams, you know, look at me, look at me. I'm important. I'm special. I'm so special you actually can't touch me. You've got to stay away. Nothing says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life more than a pastor getting off a private jet accompanied by armed men in dark suits getting into a limo. The world sees that, and they rightly call us out on it. It's disgraceful to see that kind of behavior, that type of pride. Statistically, if you are a pastor in America, anyhow, it is really tiny, tiny, tiny numbers of anyone who has been in danger at all. In fact, you're more in harm's way as a school teacher than you would be as a pastor. And I don't see very many teachers running around with a bunch of armed bodyguards because there's not a need for it. All that to show how important I am. Now, some of that may be on the outer edge of where you and I live here, but pride is not. Pride is on the inner edge for all of us. Augustine, he spoke of pride as the desire to replace God with ourselves. The original sin from which all other sin emerges. And the two primary ways this comes out is in a desire for praise. We want people to praise us. And the other is a desire to control our circumstances or the people around us. I want praise and I want to control the outcome of everything around me. And because this dark desire is one of the human heart, it can be found just as readily with a president as with a meter maid. It's common to all of us. Fame and fortune make it harder. It can feed that type of arrogance, to be sure. But even those without fame and fortune, we struggle with pride. I appreciate Calvin's remarks here on this verse. He said, the one who is governed by love is not puffed up with pride so as to despise others and feel satisfied with himself. That's what pride does. I look down on you and I have a smug self-satisfaction about myself. Proverbs 29, 23 tells us one's pride will bring him low, but he is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. We can be so blind then to our pride that we don't even think of it as pride because of this unwillingness to go low. We don't see it. It brings us down. Years ago, I worked on a, a paving crew as a, an asphalt raker. And when we were paving highways, we had state inspectors who would make sure that we were doing what we were supposed to be doing. And most of them had engineering degrees. And at times, they could be a little unreasonable. The theoretical and the practical didn't always line up. And one of the phrases that I heard frequently by a couple of the guys in the crew was they referred to them as, a bunch of educated idiots. But really, idiocy is truly democratic. It's willing to embrace the educated, the uneducated. It will embrace anyone. Takes us all. And some of those inspectors did look down on us, the dirty, uneducated paving rats. 
Some of our crew look down on them with their education. And so pride in being educated, pride in being self-made men without schooling, is the same pride. And neither really saw it as pride. They had the ability just to look down on somebody else. Well, not to let you young people off the hook either. You can struggle with learning something like math for months, fractions. Really difficult to get the concept and struggle with it. And finally, you get a breakthrough. And then you can say some mean and belittling comment to your little brother or sister because they don't know that a half plus a half equals one. Oh, you're so stupid. Everybody knows that. I can't believe you don't know that. You didn't know it until a week ago. But isn't that human nature? We gain something that somebody else gives us, and then we look down on them for not having what was given to us. That's what pride does. And the gospel tells us that everything we have is a gift. As freely as we have been given, so freely give. That is life-giving to other people when we are not inwardly focused on us. See, pride demands its rights. Collectively, as Christians, we can be some of the most demanding people of our rights. But humility lays them down in order to lift somebody else up, in order to serve. So a a pride and, and humility diagnostic Ask yourself this, will you listen to the voice of other people? Will you receive correction? Are you even open to it? What happens when someone tells you you're doing something wrong or calls into question an attitude of behavior? How do you respond to that? If it's anger and blowing up and getting big, pride's at work. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. The Lord hates arrogance and proud language. That's a strong statement. And we're called to love what God loves, not to love what God hates, because in the end, that will destroy you. One ancient writer Boethius, he put it this way, he said, while all vices, all sins flee from God, pride alone withstands God. That getting big in the face of God, which is a very foolish thing to do, you can shake a proud and angry fist at God all day long. In the end, your pride will be your undoing. It will destroy you. For you will not withstand Almighty God. Well, what's the antidote then to our pride? Of course, it's humility. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. You see that repeatedly, the call to humility. To fear God, of course, does not mean to be terrified and shaking like you're afraid of a a big dog or something like that. It's, It's not some shaking fear. The fear of the Lord means that you understand you're not the center of the universe. To fear God means that you hold him in awe wonder and reverence. The fear of God means that you will obey what he commands. You will love what he loves and you will hate what he hates. 
Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride brings him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. You see again that repeatedly. You want to go up, go low. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but rather with sober judgment, according to the measure of faith God has assigned. According to the measure of faith you figured out, no, that God has assigned. It's weighing yourself out realistically. Knowing your strengths and your weaknesses. Knowing what God has given you. From Augustine again, he says, Humility is the foundation of all the other virtues. In the soul in which the virtue of humility does not exist, there cannot be any other virtue except by mere appearance. No humility, none of the other virtues, other than a sham. Humility is an inward choice in the mind, in the heart. It resides primarily inward in the soul. And so we speak of someone having a poverty of spirit that is magnanimous. Magnanimous, large soul. Large spirit. How do you have a large soul, a magnanimous character? Because you've gone low. Seems almost a contradiction, paradox. But how often do we see that in Scripture? To have your life, you lay it down. To have a large heart, go low. Put yourself in a small place. Humility keeps within its own limits. The truly humble person knows that while you may be better than someone else at doing a particular thing, you recognize that's a gift or ability that comes from God. And so it's to be used for His glory and for the good of others, not your personal praise. A humble heart, then, is one willing to submit to authority. Not foolishly, but there's a submission. A humble heart, it speaks well of those in authority. Because we agree with them and think they're great? No, because God has placed them above us. Speaking well of those over you honors the God who put them there. Certainly in the last few years, we have not given ourselves towards commendation on this principle. This has been a terrible thing that we have seen by professing Christians. Speaking of those in authority over us that God has put there with such absolute terrible language and derision, that is a sin that needs repented of, not something that needs to be encouraged. Brothers and sisters, we have failed largely as the body of Christ in this area. And we need to repent for it. Because it comes from a proud heart. I don't like what they're doing. Okay. King Saul was trying to kill David. David was very careful about how he spoke of him. I haven't had anyone try to kill me lately who's God put over me in authority. I don't think you have either. And even if they are, David's our example. Speak well of those who are above you 
because God put them there. There's no excuse for anything else, period. We are those who demonstrate a lowness because we know our own soul. We know our own need of God's forgiveness. And that means there's a willingness to use our gifts for others even when we're not seen. We need to be very careful about chasing after titles and wanting to be recognized for our service and our achievements to do that in light of other people so they can see that we're the assistant to the regional manager. We need to be careful about those things. James tells us in chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We don't want God opposing us because of our pride. Proverbs 11, 2 is similar. When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Humility is the heart of wisdom and depends on a teachable spirit to be present. Humility is an inward trait that longs for Life to be given to other people, to build them up, as Paul has said. Love builds us. So how does one do humility? What does it look like? Well, first, if it's not from a humble motive, it's not humility. An outward act is just a farce. False humility is still pride. And we see that. That's what Paul says to think of ourselves with sober judgment. It doesn't do you any good if you're saying, oh, what? Oh, no, I'm not a very fast runner. What's that on your wall? Oh, that thing was just a gold medal for the 100 meter. Yeah. Well, you're looking and go, who are you trying to kid? That, that's not humility. It, it, recognizing that God has given you gifts and abilities is a recognition of, of the greatness of the gift giver. Say, yeah, you know, those things I can do pretty well. Sober judgment. I'm not really good at this, though. And then simply trying to use that to bless other people. From the 5th century, there was a Christian monk by the name of Benedict who put together a list of rules for this new monastery, and it's come down to us all these many years as his rule. And one of the things he wanted to make sure that his people understood was humility, and he wrote 12 different steps of humility. Here's just a few, and of course, they're very familiar to us. He gets them from Scripture. He said, a humble person keeps the fear of God before his eyes and bewares of ever forgetting it. Right out of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let him ever be mindful of all that God has commanded. A humble person loves not his own will nor takes pleasure in satisfying his desires but models his actions on the saying of the Lord. I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. A humble person, for love of God, submits himself to superiors in all obedience, imitating the Lord, of whom the apostle said he became obedient even unto death. And this one, finally from him. A humble person holds fast to patience with a silent mind, when he meets with difficulties and even any kind of injustice, enduring all without growing weary or running away. Wow. Think about that. You, you encounter an injustice of all things. He's saying a humble person responds with patience and a silent mind. Now, you may be called to address an injustice, to be sure. But the first response is not launch. 
launch, launch. This is unfair. I got to do something about it. It's patience with a silent mind. Maybe there's something about this that God is doing beyond your immediate emotional response. How will you ever know if your first one is launch, launch? How hard that is when you've been wronged. Jonathan Edwards, he speaks of humility as having a yielding spirit. It means you're not inflexible with your demands or your opinions. That inflexibility comes from pride. It's another diagnostic. Are you inflexible? What happens when people push against that? Do you get mad and angry? Or do you have a healthy distrust of yourself? Not always needing to be right. We do. We, we cultivate a healthy distrust of ourselves. And somebody says something about it, our first response is, well, yeah, I, that's probably true. I know it's true of other people, so why wouldn't it be true of me? I'm sure they see things in me that I don't see because I do with other people too. So having a distrust of yourself, a, a willingness to yield, to bend. Why would we do that? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, well known to us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, in other words, for pride, but in humility, consider others more significant than yourself. Why? Because of what Jesus did. He goes on, Paul does it, tell us that the one who was at the very highest position took on the form of a servant, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. This is the love that Jesus demonstrates to us. That's the foundation of our own love and humility towards others. You were lost, but now you're found. There's not a one of us who found ourselves. There's not a one of us who climbed the highest mountain, swam the deepest sea, read the, the greatest books of philosophy and enlightenment that the world has ever seen, and somehow we came to know and understand the truth of God. No, we were lost. Frogs puffing themselves up. And the Almighty One said, you're mine. Come over here. I'm going to send my Son, whom I have given everything, to lay it all down for you, puffed up little frog. Puffed up little frog doesn't go, look at me. We all go, look at him. He's amazing. And we allow the good news of Jesus to let the air out of our pride. We want that air out so that the right air can be blown in the largeness of heart, the large soul, the magnanimous soul. Because it is that which speaks to the love of the Father through the Son. It is that which points us to Jesus. That you and I can be a part of a community then that is able to give life to one another through Him, through the gifts that He has given. Not looking down on one another, but elevating. And that is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
that we would lift others up with a willingness to go low because of the grace of God given to us. That is truly a love that deflates. Pray with me. Father, all of us here can easily confess of our pride. Lord, we, we recognize it taints everything that we do. And Father, we do ask that you would forgive us. We confess it as sin. And Father, we long for the day when you will tear it out, root and branch. And Lord, until then, that you would continue to call us to the very low path of humility. Lord, that you would help us to war against the pride of our flesh. Lord, that we would stand firm on the good news of Jesus Christ. We bless you for the kindness that you have demonstrated to us, for lifting us up because of your grace and mercy. And may that continue to be the dominant theme in our lives here, in this time, in this place, which we pray now through Jesus our Lord.